We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, it is great to see all of you today. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I don't know if you have the same tradition at your Thanksgivings, but uh, oftentimes at family gatherings, when you gather for Thanksgiving each year, uh, somebody starts that uh, dreaded tradition of, okay, say what you're thankful for. And I know you dread it just like I do, so let's be honest. Um, and, and, and they start that discussion, and, and for us, this week, it was my father-in-law, he sat us all down, and, and we kind of alternate holidays, and so we go, you know, one year we'll go Thanksgiving to Brittany's family, and then Christmas mine, then the next year we'll switch, and so whenever we go to Brittany's family at Thanksgiving, they kind of like to do both Thanksgiving and Christmas at the same time, um, and so we kind of have this whiplash where we switch back and forth from Thanksgiving to Christmas and then back to Thanksgiving, and it's just kind of a mess, but, um, but it's a good time with family. And, and before we started to exchange gifts this year, uh, Mike, my father-in-law, sat us down and said, okay, we got to do a little more Thanksgiving first. And he got out this jar that he has, it's called his blessings jar. He, he writes things that he's thankful for. Uh, throughout his life, and he puts them in this jar so that he can look at it later and remember what God has done. And so Mike sat us down, and, and you know, we're all dreading it because, you know, everybody dreads that, that thing where you're going to say what you're thankful for and, you know, kind of go around. And it's always before you're going to eat or it's before, you know, in our case, before we were going to exchange gifts. And so you're always just kind of waiting for it to be over. But this year in that moment, as I heard my father-in-law just testify to the grace of God and what he's done in his life, I couldn't help but be humbled a little bit. And, 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 and the thing was, my, my father-in-law was understanding something about life there. See, we need to look back on what God has done. We need to look back and thank him for the things he's done in the past. Because when we do that, it shapes how we understand the present. And it shapes how we understand the future in our lives. And, and so when we come to our lives and we feel anxiety and fear and stress and worry and depression and anger and all these things, one of the most helpful things that we can do is look back on what God has done and thank him for it. And that's what we're doing in the book of Genesis. While we're in Genesis, we are looking at the creator God who has created the heavens and the earth. And we are looking at the creator God who spoke light into the darkness of creation. And we noted that week when we talked about light that God also speaks light into the darkness of our own hearts. And so we look at creation because in creation we see this God who does the miraculous, the supernatural, the impossible for our minds to conceive of it. But we look back, even in the most difficult times of our lives, on what God has done as the creator because it helps us understand the present when we're living in what we've called in the series a Genesis 3 world, where we're living in the middle of the story. We've called this series Beginnings because beginnings is, are the most important part of any story. Because beginnings set the story and set the stage for you so that you can understand what's coming. 
And so as we are living in the middle of God's story, we look at the beginning to understand who he is and what he's done. So I hope you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 as we look at our creator God and thank him for all that he has done. Today we're looking at the third day of creation where God made the world for life. And that's our main point today. Starting in verse 9, read with me down to verse 13. Moses writes, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called them seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need your help. We need your help to understand your words to us. We need to understand who you are, that we might understand how to live this life we've been given. And so, God, we come to you humbly yet boldly asking for your help today, or that you would speak into our hearts and minds, and that you would bring about change in us, change how we perceive you, change how we understand our lives and the world around us. God, we ask for your help today, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is a worldview? Well, a a worldview is a lens through which you see the world, right? It is a system of deeply held beliefs that form this lens through which you see everything else. And so C.S. Lewis kind of talked about it this way. He said that of Christianity, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so when we talk about a worldview, we're talking about something that helps us see everything around us differently. And so if you think about, if, if you've got glasses, um, you know, we were driving home last night, and, and Brittany can only drive during the day because, you know, we need to get her another eye appointment and get some different prescriptions. Because whenever you have glasses, if your prescription is accurate and helpful, it helps you see the world, right? But whenever it's not so helpful, then it's difficult to see. And so a worldview is like a lens similar to glasses through which you see everything else around you. And the ancient people, the ancient people of the Near East where Moses was writing and where Moses was living and where God had just delivered his people from slavery out of Egypt and Moses is writing about how this God, who he is and what he's done and they're looking forward to the promised land and Moses is writing about this God to his people that are living in the midst of a wilderness and looking forward to an end day when they'll enjoy all that God is doing. And they have a certain worldview. And so part of our, our task, part of what we have to do as Christians when we come to the Bible is start to understand a little bit more about the worldview of the people it was originally written to. See, the Bible was written for you and I, but it wasn't written to you and I. Does that make sense? The Bible, Moses is writing to a particular people of, of, of God at a particular time. He's writing to the Israelites in the wilderness, and as they're looking forward to the promised land, he's writing to a people that have a different worldview than you and I do. 
They have a different conception of how the cosmos was structured and, and how things worked. And so Moses is writing in language that they can understand. He's writing according to uh, their worldview about God and who he is and what he's done so that they can understand what he's saying. And so last week, you'll, they're going to put the diagram back on the screen again, but you remember we looked at this diagram of how the ancient peoples viewed the world, how they viewed the cosmos. They had this kind of three-tiered structure. Right, so last week we talked about how God on the second day created the expanse, which he called heaven, which is where his throne is, where he rules from over all creation. And the ancient people, they believed in a three-tiered cosmos where there were waters above the heaven, which was this solid sheet of metal-like substance that literally held the waters above in what was known as God's storehouses. And so God held everything that was needed for life on the earth above. He held the rain. He held every other kind of weather you can imagine. And he held them as weapons and tools in his storehouse above this metal dome. And so they understood heaven to be this very solid thing that God could literally walk on top of. And his throne was seated in it. And so they had the waters above the expanse called heaven. They had the earth beneath it. And then below that, you see the great deep, which were waters below the earth. And so you remember how we talked about at creation at the beginning, there's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And so there were these waters that needed to be separated and structured and ordered so that life could be present. And so when we look at what Moses is saying on the third day, we have to understand that he's doing it in this context, and we have to understand what he means by waters, right? And so we talked about how, you know, in the ancient world, especially in the cultures surrounding Israel and the cultures surrounding the Hebrew people, they would have believed that waters were chaos, that they held dangers, that they needed to be structured and ordered. And so at creation, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And unlike the ancient Near Eastern cultures around them, where the waters are in rebellion against one another, you know, we remember we talked about that kind of family feud that the Babylonians believed in, where, you know, the kids got a little bit annoying, and so those original water gods waged war on their own kids, and there was this huge battle, and then the mom dies after the dad had already been killed, and then she's split in two, and that forms the cosmos. This is what the Babylonians believed, that the waters were violent and that they raged against one another. And in the book of Genesis, we see something totally different. We see this God who is so sovereign over all of creation that nothing rebels against his word. When he speaks, it happens. The Bible says repeatedly throughout Genesis 1, God said it and then it was so. There is no rebellion in creation. God speaks it and it happens. Rebellion, we're going to talk about here in a few weeks down the road in Genesis 3 and how we brought sin into the world and it broke everything and now we're living in that middle, that broken Genesis 3 world. But right now when we're looking at Moses' words, we're looking at how God has structured creation to be and it's ordered and it's purposeful and it's for the purpose of life. And so we look at Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10 here, and here's what Moses says. He says, And God said, so again he's speaking, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. 
And so the first thing we see is that God made the world habitable for life. And so you think about, you know, the difference between water and land, right? You and I, we can't stand on top of water, but we can stand on, on rock. We can stand on solid ground, right? And so what Moses is picturing here for us is this, this great deep in the diagram that we've been looking at of how they viewed the, the cosmos. It's receding. It's being structured so that the earth comes forth and that there can be land, living creatures on the earth and living creatures that will be in the waters as well. And we'll look at that in a couple weeks, how God fills this cosmos that he's made with living beings that have the breath of life in them. And here we see that Moses is telling us how God has separated these waters to make it possible for life. And we see that there's three connected events in the first five books of the Bible that are really important for us understanding what Moses is talking about. In Genesis 1, 9 and 10, we see him separating the waters, just as we did last week, to make life possible on the earth. And then we also see um, the flood where God, again, makes the waters recede after his judgment so that life can again be possible on the earth. And then we also see the parting of the sea at the Exodus, where God delivered his people from slavery. He delivered them literally through the waters, and they walked on dry ground. And so these three events are connected in Scripture, and so we have to understand them as connected because Moses is writing with language that would help people understand that they are. And, and so to understand what Moses is saying here in these first couple of verses, we, you know, I wonder if you've ever had a basement flood. You know, nobody likes that. That's, you know, just a, a painful couple of months of work ahead of you. Um, but basements flood sometimes, and, and what you have to do is you have to pump the water out, right? So you have to separate the water from the ground that you usually live on, right? The water has to be separated from it so that you can, again, live in your basement. And similarly, God is separating the water so that dry land, appear, dry land appears so that the people can live on it that he's creating. You know, it's similar to if you're walking down the beach and you see the tide recede, you see land that's there, right? Before, when the, water, when the tide was coming up, you couldn't see that land there. All you saw was water. And you can't walk on the water, but when the tide recedes, when it's separated from the land, then you can walk on it. And so that's the, the same kind of thing that Moses is describing here, where God at the beginning of creation is separating the water so that land is made. And then in the flood, like we talked about last week, here's what we read in Genesis 8, 1 through 3. He says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. And we noted how that word wind in the Bible is the same word as spirit. It's, you know, it's the, there's the spirit hovering at the beginning of creation. And here in Genesis 8, we don't read that it was the spirit of God, but it's the same word, ruach. That has to do with wind or breath. And so God is literally making the waters subside by his own wind, his own breath. This wind blows over the earth and the waters subside and the fountains of the deep. So you think back to our diagram where, where below there's this great deep below the earth. And there's these fountains that at the flood had burst forth and water was all over the earth covering all the dry land. And he says, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed so that the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And then at the Exodus, we read similar. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And we have to understand that in their mind, the sea was this very chaotic, crazy place that would have driven a lot of fear in them. They would have remembered these stories of chaotic waters and, and violence in and, and the surrounding cultures, and they would have seen this, they would have remembered the stories of monsters and creatures of the deep, and they would have been very afraid of the sea. And yet God is so sovereign over the sea that he literally splits it in two so they can walk on dry ground. The sea actually becomes a protection for them at the Exodus, where on their right hand and on their left, there's these walls that God has set up so that they can walk forward. He's delivering them by splitting the waters apart. He's showing that he is the creator who is sovereign over all things and rules and reigns over the waters, and they don't rebel against him. So we see that in all three of these accounts, as John Selhammer puts it, the waters are cast as an obstacle to man's inhabiting and enjoying the good land that God has prepared. So we think about the promised land, this land that God is preparing for his people, and we think about the land that God is preparing at creation for people to live on, and how in all three of these different accounts, at creation, at the flood, at the exodus, the waters are this obstacle And in each case, the water has to be removed before God's people can really enjoy the gift of the land. But then we also learn, as in the account of the flood and of the Red Sea, the waters were also an instrument of God's judgment, right? And so the thing about having a creator, God, who is sovereign over creation, is that he's in charge, right? And this is the thing that you and I, we so often forget, especially in our culture where we are centered around the individual, We believe that what matters most is numero uno and our lives and our dreams and that we ought to be able to live life the way we want to live it. But what we've forgotten is that we are creatures. We're part of creation. And there's a distinction between the created and the creator. The creator is sovereign over all of creation, which includes us. So that means that you and I have got to stop living life according to our own desires and ways, thinking that it's going to work out that way. See, you know, we we do what we want with our money. We do what we want with our bodies. We do what we want with our possessions and our relationships. And then we look at God and we wonder when things get broken, God, why would you let this happen? And God's looking at us like, you're missing the whole point. See, when we live in rebellion against the creator, we are bound to break the creation. We are bound to live lives that are not according to God's good design, that don't bring lasting joy and fruit and hope. See, when we forget that God is creator and he is sovereign over us, and we live life our own way, our relationships break down. We find that we can't pay the bills we need to pay because we've mismanaged our finances and we've blown it on things that we didn't really need or whatever it may be. When we live lives on on our own terms, they're bound to be broken because we were made to live under the sovereign rule and reign of a creator God. We were made to remember the creator creature distinction 
And again and again throughout scripture, we see God's judgment when, when his creation rebels against him because they've forgotten this distinction. And in the New Testament, we see this same creator God who doesn't leave us to our own mess. We see the same creator God who enters in. We see the creator God who created the waters, who separated them and ordered them so that land could appear and life could be had. We see the same creator God entering into the brokenness of creation and the seas still obey him. We read it just a few minutes ago in worship in Mark chapter four, here's Mark's account of it. He says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and the great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, the same creator God reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. He reveals himself as the one who is sovereign over the wind. He is sovereign over the sea. So this thing that the Hebrews would have feared as as chaotic, he brings order to it. Jesus is sleeping soundly on a cushion while his disciples are around him freaking out. And you see, you and I, we do the same thing, don't we? We look at our circumstances We look around us and we see broken things. We see chaos. We see things happening in rebellion against God's good design. And we get afraid when life is not working how we think it should. And we forget that we serve a creator who is sovereign over the sea. Nothing rebels against his word. When he says, peace be still, it happens. Jesus is the God of creation. He is the God that we worship. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity, God who is one, but eternally existing in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is intimately involved in creation and redemption. You see, you and I, we look at, around our lives and we see that, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be able to pay this bill. And we ask Teacher, don't, do you not care that we're perishing? And we look at, we get the cancer diagnosis, and all of a sudden, everything that God has done in the past, we've forgotten. And we ask him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And we look at our broken relationships and the conflict that we have when we get angry with one another and when things, when people divide and separate and go their separate ways and families are destroyed and broken. And we look at God and we say, Teacher, don't you care? that we're perishing. You see, we've forgotten who our God is. We've forgotten that he is sovereign over the seas. And if he's sovereign over the seas to where he can say, peace be still and they obey him, is he not sovereign enough to enter into your brokenness and bring redemption and order again? 
Friends, we are created beings who have forgotten that there's a creator that we can love and trust in and hope in. Because we see the brokenness around us and immediately we think, you know, how can I fix it? Friends, we can't fix it. We need the creator God who brought order in creation to bring order again. We need the creator to be our redeemer. And that's what he is in Jesus Christ. That's how he shows himself to us and reveals himself to us. You see, the, the thing is that, is that if God created the world, then he knows its brokenness better than you do. He knows what's actually wrong. He knows the problem better than you or I could ever hope to diagnose it. And he again and again tells us that it's our sin. And we again and again say, no, that can't be. And we forget that he's always known all things. See, if he created the world, then he actually knows your needs better than you do. He knows when you need and exactly what you need. And so, so often throughout Scripture, when we read about prayer and how Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray for daily bread, right? Bread for today. And in, the Exodus, in, in Exodus, when we read about the people of Israel and they were wandering through the desert and, and God sent manna from on high and he said, gather enough for this day and no more. Because what he was trying to do is to get them to finally realize that they can only trust in him as the provider. They can't gather enough resources to make sure that life is going to work out well for them. See, God is continually trying to get you and I to realize that he is the creator, redeemer, sustainer of all that is. And that if we'll actually trust in him, that he can provide he spoke and the universe came into being and we doubt that he can provide what we need for our bills next month. Think about how ridiculous that is. He created the world and we don't trust him to provide for what we need on a daily basis. Friends, it's, it's madness. It's crazy to think that this God who cared for his creation so much that he... He speaks into it, and when he creates man, he, he forms them from the dust of the earth, as we're going to read about here in a few weeks. He's intimately involved with us, with our world. It's the world he's made. He cares about it more than you and I do. He is the creator. He is our redeemer. And just as Jesus is calling us to believe that he's a good God who made the world, he's calling us to to believe that he made the world, that he can redeem it, and that originally he made it good for life, which is our second point. We've seen that God has made it habitable for life, then we see that God made it good for life in verses 11 through 13. Here's what we read. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And look at this phrase. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And so last week we, we, we kind of jokingly noted that God looks at creation and he says of, of every day except for Monday that it's good. You know, but he made heaven on Monday, so there must have been something good there. Um, but, you know, we kind of jokingly said that, but what God is doing is he's shaping creation and he's making it good. He's making it habitable for life. That's what good means in Genesis 1. It means it's working according to how it's designed to function. And so if you think about, you know, Thanksgiving this week, you know, if you're blessed, then you have loved ones who want to watch football. And if you're not, then you have loved ones who want to watch the dog show. (laughs) And maybe you have a mixture, but sometimes you get stuck watching the dog show, okay? You know, it's okay. We can be thankful that that moment will end, you know? But as you're watching the dog show, what you see is that there's judges who are judging the dogs. And what are they judging them according to? According to their function, right? See, the dog comes on, onto the stage and, and they're trotting around and they get examined, even their teeth are examined. And, and what they're looking for is that everything is intact, right? Everything is working according to how it's supposed to, right? And if, if it's functioning properly, if it looks right, if it, you know, the teeth are clean and pristine and, and good, and sometimes the teeth are you know, cleaner on the dog than it is on the owner, which is kind of sad. But if everything is proper and in order, then the judge calls it good. And it's similar with what God has done in creation. He creates everything that there is. He forms it and shapes it with his word, and then he looks on it. He perceives and evaluates it as good. He says it's good. It's designed how I intended it to be. It's meant to work this way. And he calls it good repeatedly. And at the end, he he looks on all of it and he says it was very good. See, good in in Scripture means it's it's working according to its design. And we see there's these three established acts of creation in the first three days. So track with me here. On, on, on the first day, the, that second week of our series, we looked at how God made light, right? And we noted how this light was made before the stars and the sun and the moon were formed and placed in their places in the expanse of heaven. And so what, what must be true is that this light was emanating from the very presence of God as it does throughout Scripture with his people. He emanates light from his very presence among them. And then at the end, there will be no sun because he is our light. And so we looked at this idea that God made light. And what we noted is that light is connected with time in an intimate way in Genesis 1. And so on day one and on day four, where we read about both light and time, we see them together. And so God makes the light and he calls it day, and he he makes the night and he, he calls it night. He makes the dark and he calls it night. And so day and night are how we tell time, right? And God created us as beings living inside of time, which is ordered and structured and continues to move forward. And then we see on the second day that that he makes heaven, which is the very basis for weather in our created world. And so we noted how heaven was this this metal sheet that God had fashioned out in the ancient worldview. And they understood that he held the rain above it. 
and that windows would be opened when rain was necessary and God would bless with rain so that food would come forth, produce would happen, and they could live. So God was sovereign over the light that was necessary for life and creation, and he's sovereign over, over heaven, which he made, so that he could order and structure the weather. And then we also see, thirdly, that the earth on the third day is the basis for food. Right? That's what we read about. We just read verses 11 and 12 where God creates the plants. And then later on in the chapter, in 29 and 30, here's what we read. It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And so God, in these first three days, forms this world where life can actually happen, where life can be and exist and continue. And on the third day, we see that there's food made, and, and it's these plants. And, and just as kind of a, a quick side note, you know, we wonder, well, if they ate the plants, didn't they die before sin entered the world? Well, I, you know, I have to thank Bryce Dillard, our intern, for this insight because it was really good. Um, in, in the ancient worldview, they wouldn't have viewed plants being eaten as the death of life. They wouldn't have seen it that way. How they would have seen it, and look closely with me at 29 and 30, uh, particularly verse 30, I think. Here's what he says. Everything that has the breath of life, right? And so in the Bible, both blood and breath are identified with life. And so for blood to be shed was the loss of life. And for breath to be snuffed out was the loss of life. And so in their worldview, sin enters the world and it breaks everything so that living creatures who have the breath of life from God in them, God's own ruach, his breath, his wind in them that animates them and makes them alive, sin brings death to them. And so, no, Adam and Eve eating plants doesn't mean that there was death before the fall because they wouldn't have seen death that way. See, we have to understand their worldview so we can understand what Moses is writing for us. And so back on to what Moses is doing with day three here. See, he, he's listed out for us days one through three where God has structured the world so that we could live in it. And, and as we just talked about, our greatest problem is that we continually don't trust God. We don't trust our creator. We doubt that he can provide for us. In Matthew 6, here's what Jesus says about our anxieties and our fears and our worries in life. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? 
Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And just to notice here, he's not talking about like he's worried about not having dessert, right? That's not what Matthew's talking about. He's talking about not having food to eat. And Jesus is saying, do not be anxious. Your heavenly Father provides all these things. You don't worry about them because you didn't make them. You cannot possibly provide everything you need. Life was meant to be lived in dependence upon a creator, God. We cannot possibly provide everything we need for ourselves. That's the thing about life. We continually just try to do it again and again according to our own methods and our own ways, and it always falls short. You know, we may succeed for a while. Maybe you move up the ladder at work, and then, but later, at some point in life, you find out that with all the hard work you've put in, sometimes it's just broken. Sometimes it just doesn't play out. See, we were made to live in dependence upon God and relationship with him. And this is what Jesus is saying about our anxiety is don't, don't be fearful and don't worry and don't fret about tomorrow. Instead, trust in the creator now. And so we see in days one through three, God making this good world that functions properly. And John Walton says this about it. He says, so on day one, God created the basis for time, day two, the basis for weather, and day three, the basis for food. These three great functions, time, weather, and food, are the foundation of life. If we desire to see the greatest work of the creator, it is not to be found in the materials that he brought together. It is that he brought them together in such a way that they work such a way that they're good. Creation is good. It's made by God to function so that we can live in it and honor him. But what about the times when I look at life and I see the brokenness? What about the times when I see things wrong with creation? You know, I mean, we, we've just been talking about and praying about, and, you know, I know Tom's been on disaster relief trips for, for hurricanes and, and relief from that, and so we look at the hurricanes and we wonder, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And, and we look at the news when a plane crashes, and we wonder, teacher, do you not care? And we look at our relationships and the brokenness we see there, and we say, teacher, do you not care? See, we look at the brokenness of our world, and immediately when you and I see evil and pain and suffering in it, oftentimes our conclusion is that there must not be a good God. Because if this God who created the world to function in a certain way is allowing it to be so broken, then how could he possibly exist? Here's what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, my argument against God, because C.S. Lewis was an atheist agnostic type guy before he came to faith in Christ. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a crooked line, a line crooked, unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And so C.S. Lewis looks at the brokenness in the world around him, and he says, man, for the longest time, I thought it was evidence that there was no God. But then he saw it differently. 
Because he said, how can I have this basis for calling this unjust if there's no creator God? How could I possibly look around it and see it that way? You see, the only answer from, for the problem of evil is that there's a God who entered in and became a victim of it for us. Is that the creator God actually enters into the brokenness. You see, when we think about evil in the world, the best explanation for our horror at planes crashing and people crashing on the way home from the holidays or whatever it might, might be for you, whatever you look at in the world and you say, how can there be a good God with this? The best explanation for our horror at the evil of this world is that there is a good God who created it and wants to eradicate that same evil that you and I see. See, otherwise our perception is meaningless. We cannot call something evil if there is not something that's truly good. See, God made a good world. And so instead of our instinct when the plane crashes being, there could be no God that would allow this. We ought to think of all the times that we've traveled and the plane has landed safely. And how the sovereign creator allows for that to happen. And we ought to think about the hurricanes and, and how when we see all that destruction and chaos and, and pain and suffering and the tears, we ought to think about all the times that God has held back the seas and made sure that they stayed in their boundaries so that life could be on the earth. See, friends, you or I, our instinct is to doubt God when we see brokenness. But friends, God cares more about the brokenness than you do. You can't out-love God. You can't out-care God. God cares more about the brokenness of this world than you or I ever could because we never see it all. And he does. He sees everything and knows everything and he knows how everything was made to function as good. And yet you and I, we can't even perceive all the ways in which our sin has broken the world around us. See, we were made as stewards of creation and we brought into creation rebellion against the creator and it broke everything. And God is redeeming it. And, and you look at the brokenness in the world around you and you, you wonder, why not now? Why not just snap your fingers and make it all right again? Well, friends, he's patient with us. Our God is not slow. He's patient and he's desiring that all would be saved. That all would come to a saving knowledge of him through Christ. That we would all know him and see him clearly. See, on the third day, we read about this God who provides food that human beings will eat and that life will be on the earth because of the way he's ordered it. And in John chapter 6, we read about the same creator God showing up and saying, I am the bread of life. And talking about how his own blood and body are what make eternal life possible for us. So friends, I don't know what you bring into this room today in terms of your hurts and your pain. I don't know 
what struggles you've had with God and the ways you've doubted his goodness. But here's what I do know. God sees your brokenness, and in Jesus Christ, he entered into it. See, I, I, I asked a pastor, a friend of my one, mine one time, about the problem of evil. I just said, you know, how do we make sense of the sovereign creator God when there's evil in the world and suffering and pain? And he said, you know, I have to be honest with you, Grant. I, God hasn't given us an explicit, drawn-out answer for that. But what he has done is he's entered into the midst of it. In Jesus Christ, we see the creator God coming to his creation and saying, I'm here, I'm present, and I've come to redeem and restore it. And so, friends, we don't have another hope. He is our hope. He is our living hope, as we sang about today. And so if you're in this room today, that is what matters most. What matters most is that you trust in this creator God who didn't just create everything and let it go like a top that he spun and he's just waiting for it to topple over. Instead, he made it and he entered into this broken world so that he might die in our place so that through our faith in him, we could have eternal life. So would you pray with me? Father God, we are in desperate need of you. We are in desperate need of your care for us. We are in desperate need of your help. God, we pray that you would give us faith. God, we have no hope apart from you. We pray that you might remind us that you are our creator and we live in dependent relationship upon you. And I pray for those who have never trusted in Christ this morning. I ask that you might speak light into the darkness of their hearts in this very moment. And God, I pray that as you do so, I pray that they wouldn't leave this place without talking to someone next to them about the faith they've placed in you. I pray that we might encourage them in their newfound faith. And God, in those moments of doubt, we pray for your help. That you might help us to see that you care for your creation in a way that we never could. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.